Welcome to Common Ground, a show encouraging debate and a deeper understanding of hot-button topics in Berlin and beyond. I'm your host, Soraya Sarhadi Nelson. Today is the birthday of an American spy and hero who is the protagonist of our latest episode. She, like me, is a Milwaukee native and Berlin transplant, except when she lived here, Berlin was the capital of the Third Reich. Her name is Mildred Fish Harnock, and if you haven't heard of her, you soon will, thanks to author Rebecca Donner and her new book, All the Frequent Troubles of Our Days, which is on the New York Times bestseller list. Well, Mildred Harnock is my great-great-aunt, and I first heard her name when I was about nine years old, when I was visiting my great-grandmother in Chevy Chase, Maryland, and she was measuring my height against the kitchen wall, putting a ruler on my head. And she made a mark on the wall. And, and then I stepped back and I looked at my mark and then I looked at all the other marks and some were rather faint. Um, and I got the idea uh, that they had been put there quite a long time ago. And I pointed to one that had an M next to it and I asked her, who's that? And she said, well, that's Mildred. There was something rather brittle about the way she said it and so, I understood instantly at the age of nine that there was a bigger story here. And I carried that mystery with me. When I was 16, my grandmother then took me aside and said, here are Mildred's letters. Um, She knew that I wanted to be a writer. And she said to me, one day you must write this book. And so I resolved that one day I would. So who was her great, great aunt? Was she an academic-turned-spy-and-resistance leader, or was her husband, Arvid Harnock, who worked at the Reich's Ministry of Economics, the actual ringleader, with Mildred playing a more passive role? Rebecca says her goal in writing the book was to, quote, puncture holes in the myths. It wasn't easy given the dearth of records and decades of discomfort on both sides of the Atlantic over the couple's political leanings. There was also the sexism. The people who wrote about Mildred uh, for many decades were were men, and they viewed her through a very gendered lens, and journalists as well. Uh, In 1947, the New York Times published an article that called Arvid an underground leader and dismissed her as his wife. Um, And, you know, this, this inaccuracy was characteristic of the era, but it has persisted until the present day. Um, Historians writing about this group typically name Arvid Harnock as a leader and either ignore Mildred entirely or mention her merely as Arvid's wife, even though Mildred began was leading meetings by 1935, which is when Arvid got a job at the Ministry of Economics with the express purpose of stealing top secret documents that he would then pass to Hitler's enemies. And in the beginning, that was uh, key people at the Soviet embassy. And then in 1939, Mildred and Arvid also passed this information to the United States. Mildred's students, uh, she taught at the University of Berlin um, and also at a night school for adults in Berlin, and she recruited them. They became a kind of pool of recruits for her, and they were given code names, Armless, Beamer, Worker. But in books and in articles, they're, they're referred to as Arvid's recruits, not Mildred's recruits. And Arvid is presented as presiding over the meetings, but after 1935, quite early, he stopped and gave that role to to Mildred and one other person in the group. And we know this um, because of archival evidence, uh, post-war interrogations of of some of the members of the group. The scholar uh, Claudia Kuhns has observed that many historians writing about the German resistance downplay, marginalize, or entirely ignore women's participation. That's my primary um, objection to what has been written about Mildred Harnock. 
So in my research, uh, one of the texts I used was David Dolan's Soviet Espionage, which was published in 1955. And he writes about Mildred Harnock, that she was, quote, essentially a non-political person interested only in literature and languages. Um, Heinz Hohne, who wrote uh, Code Word Director in 1970 about the, the Mildred's group, the Rote Capelle, um, the Red Orchestra, uh, which I can talk about too, that was never a name that Mildred used uh, to refer to her group. Uh, but Heinz Hohner wrote that, quote, as a wife, Mildred followed her husband's line. She was basically non-political. German historian Ant Bauerkemper says Mildred was one of only a few female spies at the time. They, to some extent, um, revitalized um, the stereotype of the femme fatale. And this is a very traditional stereotype. Women were thought as particularly cunning spies, you know, the attraction, the female attraction, you know. Of course, these were all stereotypes, but if you look at the um, files of the German Gestapo, the German secret police, you can see this kind of, kind of stereotype that women were particularly dangerous spies just because of the female attractiveness and uh, kind of a sexual connotations, of course, as well. But... Uh, Women were particularly noteworthy because there were just very few women in the resistance movement. Mildred first arrived in Germany with her husband in 1929. They met as graduate students at the University of Wisconsin and married two days after she finished her master's degree. In Germany, Mildred worked on her doctorate and taught at Berlin University, where Albert Einstein also taught. But alarmed by the rise of Hitler and the Nazi regime, Mildred and her husband soon joined the resistance and became spies. In her book, Rebecca describes how all of it worked. Some of it is cringeworthy, like her great-great-aunt using an 11-year-old boy to deliver coded messages and serve as a lookout. The boy, Donald Heath Jr., was featured in a 2011 documentary on Mildred Harnock by U.S. broadcaster PBS Wisconsin. My mother and father really weren't keyed into how dangerous the situation was. His covert operation? Follow Mildred on a train to the city of Potsdam. His instructions involved a rendezvous in a park. You're going to follow me. If you, you see me join this lady, but if somebody else seems to be following us, you walk by and you have to whistle a tune. <whistles> and I'll know we're being followed. I asked Rebecca what she thinks about her great-great-aunt's choice. You identified exactly the point that uh, raised some concern with me. Uh, and I, I, you know, I interviewed that, that boy when he was 89 years old. I discovered that he was alive and well and living in Northern California. So I flew across the country to interview him and, and I interviewed him extensively. And then after he passed away, his family gave me access to 12 steamer trunks of documents. And in those steamer trunks um, were his mother's diaries. And they gave me insight into what his mother was thinking about when she agreed uh, to let him be a courier for the underground resistance in Berlin. She also put the question to Donald Jr. How do you feel about your parents putting you in that kind of risky situation? And he dodged the question. I mean, he wasn't very comfortable answering it. And he said, you know, I do think that they were naive. As Americans, they thought they had somehow sort of um, some kind of 
force field protecting them and protecting him. And his father was a diplomat at the U.S. Embassy in Berlin. And he had just thought that if somehow uh, 11-year-old Don were to be caught, that they would be able to you know, spare him. Um, this was between 1939 and 1941 uh, that he was a courier uh, for the underground resistance and specifically for Mildred when he would show up twice a week at her apartment ostensibly for tutoring sessions in English and American literature. And then at the end of the lesson, she would slip into his knapsack a piece of paper. And sometimes this piece of paper had, it was a note, and sometimes it was a meeting place, a time and a location outside of Berlin where they could presumably avoid uh, Gestapo surveillance. And then they would exchange information orally under the guise of a picnic. And uh, or you know they're hiking um, or swimming in the lake, and so two couples would meet: the Donald and Louise Heath, and Mildred and Arvid Harnock. And then little Don would run around and play the role of the lookout um, and make sure that nobody was uh, passing by and and listening. I do think that if she had believed that his life was in danger, that she wouldn't have engaged him in that activity. But I can't know for sure. I don't have her diary. She burned it. Uh, what I do know is that his mother wrote in her diary about how worried she was um, and that she wondered, I, I put this in my book, uh, she says, I wonder whether, I'm paraphrasing now, but you know, whether this is a big mistake. To understand Mildred, it is important to understand her life and environment at the time. While the Nazis were brutally persecuting Jews and other minorities, they began to restrict the role of women in the Third Reich. Adolf Hitler took to the airwaves to hammer home what he expected of them. He said, there is no greater nobility that women can acquire than to be mothers of the people's sons and daughters. Rebecca delves into that misogyny in one of her favorite chapters that she agreed to read for us. An Act of Sabotage, 1933-1934 1. Mildred is pregnant. For the past two years, she has been doing abdominal exercises to prepare her body for pregnancy. The book she bought depicts exactly how she should position her arms and lift her torso to do a proper sit-up. The book hasn't prepared her for what she should do now. 2. The role of women is to populate Germany with good Germans. This is what Minister of Public Enlightenment and Propaganda Joseph Goebbels announces in a speech he delivers in a crowded room in Berlin. He has given his speech a humdrum title, German Women, but he delivers it with verve. Women during the Weimar era were granted too many rights, Goebbels tells the crowd. Women shouldn't hold public office or compete with men in the workplace. The feminization of men always leads to the masculinization of women he says, and the net result is profound despair for both sexes. A fundamental change is necessary, Goebbels bellows into a microphone. The first best and most suitable place for the woman is in the family, and her most glorious duty is to give children to the people and nation, children who can continue the line of generations and who guarantee the immortality of the nation. It's essentially impossible to find a condom in Berlin or anywhere else in Germany. Contraception was readily available in major cities by the end of the Weimar Republic. 
Vending machines dispensed condoms in men's public restrooms. Clinics provided free condoms. Now they're illegal. Three. Hitler tells the Nazi Women's League that a woman's world is her husband, her family, her children, and her home. He criticizes the concept of women's emancipation, insisting that it is merely an invention of the Jewish intellect. After the thunderous applause dies down, he continues. We do not think it proper for women to invade the world of man to enter his territory. Instead, we think it natural for these worlds to remain separate. And that is why woman has always been man's helper and as such, his most loyal friend. And it is also why man has always been his wife's protector and as such, her best friend. Four. Across Germany, women lose their jobs. Over 19,000 women in leadership positions at the ministries and in regional and local government offices are immediately fired. Women lawyers are dismissed from firms. Women physicians are ousted from clinics. Restaurant owners are threatened by police if they don't sack their waitresses and replace them with men. Women who aren't fired are encouraged to give up their jobs to make room for unemployed men. Goebbels mounts a vigorous propaganda campaign against so-called double earners, families in which a husband and wife hold both jobs. Five, young women are discouraged from going to college. A new quota restricts the number of women who can enroll in a German university to 10%. There were over 18,000 female university students in Berlin before Hitler took power, a number that soon plummets to 5,447. The curriculum in German high schools is revamped. Girls are required to take classes in cooking, cleaning, and mending. The single goal of a young woman's education is to prepare her for motherhood. Hitler establishes his mother's birthday, August 12, as the new Mother's Day and declares it a national holiday. Six, Mildred takes a train to Grunewald to visit Arvid's cousin, Agnes von Sanharnack, whom she admires. Agnes is an ardent women's rights activist who until recently was president of the Federation of German Women's Associations, which has over 500,000 members. Agnes is outraged that women across Germany are losing their jobs, jobs that have subsequently fallen into men's hands. In 1908, Agnes von Sanharnack had the distinction of being the very first woman to enroll at the University of Berlin. During the Weimar Republic, she co-founded the German Association of Women Academics and gave birth to a daughter, Margarita, who is 15 now and is fond of telling Mildred and anyone else she pays a visit to that she wants to be a doctor when she grows up. These days, it seems like a pipe dream. Rebecca tells me she's really fired up about this. I don't think that people understand how quickly Hitler and the, the Nazi regime came down on women. Um, this is in 1933, 1934. And, uh, you know, the Weimar Constitution during the Weimar um, era guaranteed women the right to vote, the right to hold public office. And uh, these rights were taken away and everybody else's civil rights were taken away too. You know, during the Weimar Republic, there was freedom of speech, uh, freedom to practice religion, freedom of the press. In uh, Berlin, there were 90 daily newspapers. 
and uh, that represented a whole spectrum of, of ideologies from the far left to the far right and everything in between. But I think that people don't really truly uh, appreciate or really know how swiftly women were urged and required to stay in their place, in the home, and to serve a single role as basically a man's supporter and as a, a kind of womb uh, to just bear children over and over again. Later in the chapter, I, I talk about how women were given medals for the number of children they bore, and they were given tax breaks. Uh, the families were given tax breaks. Um, so th there was a financial incentive as well that was built in, you know, at a time where people were really struggling. I'm just going to give you a couple other st statistics. There was a law passed called the, the Law for the Encouragement of Marriage. If two people got married, they could receive a state loan of 1,000 Weismach, equivalent to about one-fifth of a worker's annual income. As long as a woman promised to immediately leave her job, and if she gives birth to one baby, she, the couple receives a credit of 250 Weismach. If she has a second baby, 500. If she has a third, 750. And the entire loan was forgiven the day that her fourth baby was born. Rebecca says Mildred sought companionship at another organization she helped found, the American Women's Club of Berlin. I should mention that I'm a member of that organization. I mean, I think the American Women's Club was enormously important to her in a number of ways. And one was that it just gave her a, a kind of forum for her ideas and she could uh, appear before a group of Americans and and talk about literature. But the line between sort of literature and politics was a flexible one, um, or the boundary was a very porous one. Uh, and talking about American literature that was published by people like uh, Theodore Dreiser and William Faulkner and Willa Cather enabled her to then make some political points about the impoverished uh, people in Germany and what was going on in, in the political atmosphere. Um, but very specifically, the, the one person we do know uh, who had a direct impact on the underground resistance group that she was a member of was a member there, Louise Heath, who was the wife of a U.S. diplomat at the U.S. Embassy in Berlin. She was also the mother of Donald Jr., the young courier and lookout recruited by Mildred. Louise Heath went there with her son and as to, to hear one of these lunchtime lectures. And then afterwards, they were milling around and she realized she made this connection. She thought, oh, Mildred Harnock. That's Arvid Harnock's wife. And she remembered that her husband had been talking about how he wanted to basically use Arvid Harnock as a source of information. And he had other sources uh, who provided him information about, about Germany's operational, or about Hitler's operational strategies. And one of these was Hjalmar Schacht. Uh, and there were other sort of prominent Germans who, who were also uh, collecting information and then giving it over to the Americans. And he really wanted Arvid, but Arvid was at that point not forthcoming and not responsive to his overtures. And so it was Louise Heath, member of the American Women's Club, who made the introduction. She introduced herself to Mildred and said, oh, you know, my husband really would love to meet you and your husband. Why don't I organize a tea um, and we'll invite some other uh, diplomats and we'll have a lovely afternoon. And so under the guise of, of a kind of just a, an innocent lunch, um, they were able to build a relationship that then supported espionage uh, down the line. And so that's traceable all the way back to the American Women's Club of Berlin. 
Shweta Gupta is an attorney and the current president of the American Women's Club in Berlin. I asked her about Mildred's legacy and how the club has evolved. The club's been around for some time, um, in some way, shape, or form, since 1931. And as I reflect on it, you know, yes, she was certainly far more political and politically active and, and that kind of an activist. But I think this Berlin club, to me, the membership just seems um, very interested in current events and social causes and social justice. And I think, I wonder, I don't know, I'm completely speculating, but I wonder if that's just sort of carried because we're in Berlin and because Berlin itself is such an interesting city and it kind of evokes and attracts that kind of interest on the part of individuals. So I'd like to think that her her influence has carried forward all the way to 2021. Of course, I'm completely speculating. Speculating, but I find it interesting that we remain a um, social justice-minded organization even today, thanks to our philanthropy efforts. At the moment, that involves helping young female mountain climbers from Afghanistan. They were trained by the American NGO Ascend and are trying to flee the Taliban. And the AWC is helping resettle them in a half dozen countries, most of them in the West. But let's go back to the Third Reich and what happened to Mildred Harnock. In September 1942, she and Arvid were arrested by the Gestapo. He was tried, sentenced, and hanged three and a half months later. Arvid died thinking his beloved wife would escape execution and be sentenced to prison. But she was executed by guillotine on February 16, 1943, at Plötzensee Prison in Berlin. It was very difficult for the family to to accept. And the way that they discovered uh, what had happened to her was also quite painful. Her sister, my great-grandmother, was frantically trying to find out what happened to her around the um, middle of 1942, or rather I should say in the fall of 1942, Mildred and her husband Arvid were arrested and thrown into uh, the basement prisons uh, cells of Gestapo headquarters. So around that time, Mildred's letters to her family in the United States stopped and her eldest sister, my great grandmother, began in about 1943, the beginning of 1943, trying to find out what went on, what happened. Um, Of course, there was a war going on. So she wrote to the Red Cross and she was she didn't get a response. And uh, and she tried various strategies to find out what happened to Mildred and to inquire whether or not she was safe. And then newspaper articles began to be published about Arvid's death and death by hanging. And so this heightened the family's concern that something had happened to Mildred, but still no one was forthcoming with information. And by the time she discovered what had happened, I think she had already resolved herself to the notion that she had passed away, but she never expected that it would be, uh, the instrument of death would be a guillotine. It seemed so very medieval to her. And to this day, when I tell people that Mildred Harnock and the women in her group were executed by guillotine, the response is, is uh, people are aghast. And, uh, you know, hanging, shooting, somehow this is easier for people to accept. I asked Rebecca whether Mildred being an American affected her treatment at the hands of the Nazis. Well, what I can say about that, and, and again, a lot of this is conjecture because a lot of the evidence was destroyed. Nazi officials 
destroyed the transcripts of the um, the mass trial that was conducted at the Reichskriegsgericht. Uh, and we have the sentencing documents, but we don't have the actual transcripts. Um, and uh, Mildred's letters, a lot of them that she wrote to her family were burned at the express uh, directive of her eldest sister who was worried uh, about the taint of communism. And um, in her prosecution and execution, we can only surmise, but you know, initially, when, after the first trial, she was uh, declared to be a traitor, a, an accessory to treason, and she was given a lighter sentence than Germans in her group. She was actually, her life was spared. She was given six years in prison. And two days later, Hitler found out about this sentence and he ordered a reversal. And so she was strapped down to a guillotine and beheaded. Um, after a second trial that was really just a formality. German historian Ant Bauerkemper spoke about the legacy of the Harnocks and the Berlin resistance movement. We have to acknowledge that they did resist against the dictatorial rule, and we have to respect this and acknowledge this, and not just try to categorize people as socialists, um, conservatives, and non-democrats, which they were according to our present day views, and acknowledge that even though these people were not democrats, according to present day yardsticks, they did resist and uh, they, they do deserve respect for this. A brass-plated Stolperstein, or stumbling stone, to honor Mildred Harnock is located in the cobblestone next to Gentina Street No. 14 in central Berlin. Meanwhile, Rebecca's book, All the Frequent Troubles of Our Days, published by Little, Brown, and Company, is available at bookstores and online. Thanks for listening and join us for upcoming episodes on Common Ground. I'm Soraya Sarhadi Nelson. Common Ground senior producer is Dina El-Sayed, and our Arthur F. Burns Fellow is Stephanie Wolf. Our social media editor is Manuel Sierra Alonso. Common Ground is made possible through a grant administered by the German Ministry for Economic Affairs and Energy. Our episodes are available wherever you get your podcasts. If you are on Apple, we'd love for you to write a review on Common Ground. You can also subscribe to the podcast on Spotify. And be sure to also check out our website, commongroundberlin.com. <laughs>